The Fed has announced that it's pausing interest rate hikes at a time when core inflation is still at 5% and the economy is still growing. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS. Welcome back to Bulls, Bears, and BS. I'm Graham Summers, and today is Thursday, June 15th, 2023. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve refused to raise rates, leaving them at 5.25%, and so we are officially on the pause for the Federal Reserve. Their dot plot suggests that they might hike rates an additional two times sometime in the next six to eight months, but for now, the Fed's officially on pause, and it's doing it at a time when core inflation remains at 5%. Now, the official inflation measure in this country, which is called the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, has come down quite a bit in the last six months. It peaked around 9% in the latter half of 2022, and its recent data, which came in for the month of May 2023, shows that it's around 4%. So it seems, on the surface of it, that the Fed's actually done quite well. Inflation's dropping pretty aggressively. However, the devil is in the details on this, and the reality is that almost all of the decline in inflation has been the result of energy prices dropping. If you go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, they're the organization that publishes the inflation data, They actually have a table that lays out all the different components of the consumer price index. Because again, this is an index. It's a collection of all the different data points like food, energy, housing, and the like that make up the inflation number. Now, the actual data for this shows us that the only area in which prices have actually been falling is in energy. If you look at food, it's still rising. If you look at food away from home, it's still rising. If you look at all items outside of food and energy, all of that's rising, which basically is a way of saying all the commodities that are not involved in food or energy are rising. You'll see also that apparel is still rising, medical care communities is rising, shelters rising, transportation services is rising, and so on and so forth. The only area in which there's been a large drop in prices is in energy. And a big part of this is because the Biden administration is actually dumping hundreds of millions of barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is not some kind of conspiracy. This is just basic facts. If the economy is allegedly growing, which we're told repeatedly by other data points, then oil demand should be relatively stable. But instead, oil prices continue to plunge. They've dropped from a peak of $130 a barrel from March of last year down to the upper 60s, low 70s dollars per barrel, which is where they are now. That decline is not due to some aggressive amount of economic contraction. If it was, we'd see across the board signs that the economy is extremely weak, because only that kind of weakness 
would cause demand destruction that would warrant oil prices falling so much. The reason oil prices have fallen so much is because the Biden administration is draining the strategic petroleum reserve by hundreds of millions of barrels of oil. In the simplest of terms, they're taking the U.S.'s emergency stash of oil, which is supposed to only be used in the case of emergencies, and they're just dumping it on the market, which is creating more supply. And if demand is not growing aggressively, then that's going to force price down. This is all basic economics. It's not conspiracy theory either. They're very open about this because they've said we're doing this to try to tame inflation. But this doesn't actually tame inflation. All it does is create an artificial level of energy prices, and it causes the energy price component of the consumer price index to fall. If you take out the impact of lower energy prices from the consumer price index, then you would see that the Federal Reserve has actually accomplished next to nothing in terms of inflation. And we know this because the CPI actually has a subsegment called core CPI, which is what strips out energy and food prices and other items that tend to be more volatile. And that has been stuck at 5% for over six months now. What that means is that basic inflation, when you remove the most volatile components, the prices of things that go up and down a lot in a week or two, has been stuck at 5% for six months. And it's done this despite the Fed continuing to raise rates throughout that time period. So what this all tells us is that the Fed is actually not accomplishing a whole lot by raising rates in the way that it has, which of course begs the question, why is the Fed doing it? The reality is the Federal Reserve is making a mistake that it actually made before this back in the 1970s during the last bout of major inflation in this country. At that time, the Fed initially tried to raise rates to end inflation, just like it's doing so now. At that point, between 1972 and 1975, inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, rose from 3.3% to 11.1%. During this time period, the Fed, which was chaired by a gentleman named Arthur Burns, attempted to end inflation by raising rates, much as the Fed has done in the last 14 months. Now, this did succeed in triggering a recession, but it actually failed to end inflation. And that's a key point because historically, the Fed has argued that you can't have a recession with inflation. This was based on this theory of the Phillips curve, which somehow argued that you cannot have high unemployment and high prices because if unemployment goes up, that means more people are losing their jobs. There should be less demand, and so the price of items should fall, and there should be no inflation. The 70s totally disproved that because we had a recession during which inflation was in the double digits. So this idea that you can't have a recession with inflation is foolish, but for some reason the Fed thought it in the 70s, and it seems to still think it today. Anyway, Arthur Burns raised rates aggressively, triggered a recession, but didn't really get rid of inflation. The CPI only fell down to 5.75%, excuse me, 5.7% in 1976. It then subsequently rebounded and roared higher to a peak of 13% in 1980. So President Nixon, who was the president at the time, got rid of Arthur Burns and replaced him with William Miller as Fed chair in 1978. But Miller, just like Arthur Burns, did the same thing. He just simply raised rates from 6.75% to 10.5%. 
But in spite of him doing this, inflation actually continued to rise from 7.6% to 11.3%. It was then that things changed because Miller was fired and Paul Volcker was installed as Fed chair. And this is where things changed dramatically. Volcker came in and immediately stated, we're not going to try to end inflation by raising rates. We're going to try to end inflation by draining excess reserves and liquidity from the financial system. The goal in Volcker's mind was that you needed to remove the froth from the financial system and let rates move in a wider range in order to tighten monetary policy enough that inflation would finally disappear. Unfortunately for Volcker, doing all of this triggered a severe recession that lasted from July of 1981 until November of 1982. But the good news was that it finally succeeded in destroying inflation. CPI dropped down to 3% in 1983, and it never really came back to, from that point onward. Volcker was a very polarizing figure, as you can imagine, because draining all that excess reserves and liquidity from the financial system was very problematic. It caused a severe recession. Anybody who had a lot of debt, including politically important groups like farmers, were almost bankrupted, if not bankrupted by it. And in fact, there were times in which farmers were protesting in Washington, D.C. with their tractors right on the street outside the Federal Reserve's building. But since that time, the Fed's had a series of academics as Fed chairs, and nobody's actually been as aggressive or as careful as Volcker was in terms of making sure inflation wasn't a major problem. I bring all of this up because you sometimes see in the media today that people are claiming that our current Fed chair, Jerome Powell, is a disciple of Paul Volcker and actually sees him as a hero. If this is true, Powell certainly hasn't shown it with his behavior because all he's done is raise interest rates in an attempt to end inflation. It's true that the Fed has drained $500 billion in liquidity from its balance sheet, but that's really a drop in the bucket because the Fed's balance sheet was $9 trillion when it started to do that. So really, the Fed hasn't drained much liquidity at all, and we're seeing a lot of signs that liquidity is actually out of control in this country. Case in point, every single night of the week, banks park over $2 trillion in excess funds at the Federal Reserve. They do this via a program called the Reverse Repo Agreement, in which they essentially park excess cash at the Fed, they get paid interest on that cash, and in return, they don't actually have to put the money to work in the economy. The only reason that banks would do this is because it's free money from the Fed and they don't see the demand in the economy to warrant doing it. They don't see something that's going to pay them more in interest because the Fed's paying over 5% on these funds. Again, that's, I got to be clear here, this is 5% annualized. So it's not like the Fed's paying 5% every night. But again, if you're a bank, you can earn 5% a year just sitting extra cash with the Fed with zero risk. And they're doing this to the tune of about $2 trillion every single day. If you see a chart for this, you actually will see that this has not really come down since the beginning of, since the middle of 2022. So essentially, banks have been showing us, point blank, that they've got about $2 trillion in extra money just lying around, and they've been in this state for a year now. That alone should tell you and should tell the Fed that the problem is not rate hikes, the problem is froth or excess liquidity in the system. Because again, we're not talking about a small amount of money here, we're talking about $2 trillion. Some other signs of froth and liquidity in the system concerns the large tech companies and some of the price moves we're seeing in the stock market. 
Meme stocks are back. Meme stocks are stocks in which people are investing in them for ironic or humorous purposes when they're fully aware that the underlying business is garbage. Well, we're starting to see triple digit price moves in those companies again. You're also seeing it in the AI bubble. You can't have a bubble without excess liquidity being in the system. And having companies like NVIDIA trading at 180 times prices to earnings or other some of these other companies that are trading at ridiculous price to earnings valuations as well tells us point blank there's too much liquidity in the financial system. In fact, the AI bubble is so out of control that companies are falling over each other trying to mention AI on their earnings calls. We had 110 companies out of the S&P 500 mention artificial intelligence or AI during their first quarter earnings results. Again, we're talking about 110 companies, so more than one-fifth of the S&P 500. And finally, one additional sign that there's too much froth or liquidity in the financial system comes from the Fed's balance sheet itself. It took the Fed nine months to drain $500 billion in liquidity from the system, but it put almost $400 billion into the system in the span of two to three weeks during the regional banking crisis in March of 2023, just a few months ago. So to recap all of this, the Fed is once again repeating the mistake it initially made in the 1970s during the last major bout of inflation in this country. And that mistake is they're ignoring the clear and obvious signs that there's excess liquidity in the system, that there's too much froth, and they're simply focusing on raising rates when it comes to ending inflation. Why they're doing this is anyone's guess. My best guess would be that the Fed is fully aware that if it drains liquidity aggressively from the financial system, that asset prices, specifically stocks, are going to come crashing down, and that's going to be on the front page of the newspaper, which is going to get the American public's attention, and the Fed's going to become a political target. It's really that simple. It used to be this big conspiracy theory that the Federal Reserve cared about the stock market, but we now know from various statements that Fed officials have made in public over the last few years that they actually look at stocks quite a lot. And a big reason for this is because stocks are the asset class that most Americans have their retirement accounts in. It's true that the debt markets are actually far more important systematically, and they're much larger than the stock markets, but very few Americans are aggressively invested in bonds. Almost everybody has exposure to stocks. According to the latest data I saw, I believe that 60% of American households have some kind of exposure to the stock market right now. And for this reason, anytime that something really bad happens to stocks, it gets front page news and it gets the public's attention. And if that decline in stock prices is due to Fed policy, well, then the Fed starts getting a lot of political pressure. So my best guess here is that the Fed is trying to do this ridiculous situation of arguing that it's going to end inflation and raising rates to do so with the hope that it can get away from engage forcing stocks to fall to much lower levels and consequently won't draw the ire or frustration of the American masses. The other asset class that benefits from what the Fed's doing is real estate. It's no surprise that real estate's actually been going gangbusters. In the 1970s, real estate was actually one of the best asset classes to own. It's looking like it's that way again, despite interest rates and mortgage rates being very high. And the reason for this is that something like 90% of mortgages locked in rates below 3% in the last five years, well before the Fed started hiking rates aggressively. Moreover, 
provided that home prices are appreciating at a higher level than interest rates are, you are getting something of a nice carry by borrowing at, say, 7% and seeing capital appreciation of 10% in your home price. So this is a big reason why real estate's proven to be so strong, despite everyone saying that high rates was going to cause it to crash. It actually hasn't crashed at all. And again, real estate and stocks are the two asset classes that comprise the bulk of most Americans' wealth. Household wealth is very strongly tied to real estate and stock levels. So I think the Fed simply trying to argue that it's going to end inflation with rate hikes. It's either full of idiots who don't realize that's not going to stop inflation, or these are people who are being hypocrites or deceitful by claiming that they think rate hikes will get rid of inflation, because the reality is the only thing that's really going to get rid of it would be draining the excess froth from the financial system. But the Fed doesn't want to do that because that's going to cause stocks and real estate to drop to much lower levels, which is going to make everyone poorer and draw political pressure to the Fed. Outside of all of this, there's some interesting things going on in the United Kingdom. If you go back to September of 2022, which seems like an eon ago based on what's happened in the stock market and other asset classes since, we were actually on the cusp of a sovereign debt crisis in the global financial system. And what was happening specifically was the United Kingdom was on the verge of a debt spiral. The 10-year yield, excuse me, the yield on the 10-year UK government bond was going absolutely vertical, which is a sign of default risk. And the British pound, which is their currency there, had collapsed going straight down to a 30-year low. Now, this was happening allegedly because the trust government, excuse me, the government of the new prime minister, Liz Truss, had introduced a program of cutting taxes as an effort to try and boost growth. However, the problem with this was that the UK, like the United States, has a fiscal issue in the sense that they collect money via taxes and then they spend money. And if taxes are not enough to cover the spending, then they have to run a deficit by issuing debt to the markets. Since the UK was already suffering from an inflationary problem, which was causing bond yields to go higher, the fact that they were suddenly going to start cutting taxes, which would mean a larger deficit happening in that country, the bond market started to puke and the currency market started to collapse as well. It's what happened next was actually quite strange because both of those markets sort of stopped on a dime and turned the other way. And the US dollar, which had been going straight up at that point, suddenly stopped on a dime and started collapsing. And within two weeks of that happening, the entire financial system shifted into a pro-risk or risk-on rally and hasn't looked back. Stocks have basically gone up since that time. In fact, October of 2022 marked the bottom for most risk assets. It's also around that time that we started seeing the frothy plays like the AI plays and the tech companies and other companies that tend to benefit from liquidity skyrocketing. So the question becomes, what happened in October of 2022? Did Liz Truss resigning as prime minister somehow mark the bottom for every risk asset globally? And if you know what significance the United Kingdom plays, you know that's a ridiculous assertion. It'd be one thing for the largest economy in the world, the United States, to have its government sort of crumble and a new election have to take place. But this is the United Kingdom, which is actually only the sixth largest economy in the world. So I find it very difficult to believe that somehow the fact that the prime minister who'd proposed a tax cut program 
was resigning would be a big enough issue that globally the entire financial system would turn around and rally based on this news. What I think is far more likely is that the U.S. dollar had been trading at levels that were becoming extremely problematic for its trade partners and for other currencies, specifically Japan, the United Kingdom, and Europe, and there was some kind of coordinated intervention behind the scenes to force the U.S. dollar lower. This reduced the pressure on the debt markets because, remember, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And something like 60% of global debt is denominated in dollars. And when the dollar's strong and you can't print dollars because you're another country and your debt is actually denominated in U.S. dollars, that actually means that it's becoming more and more difficult for you to act to finance your debt payments. Because again, your domestic currency is falling against the dollar and you're having to make your debt payments in dollars and you can't print dollars. So what I wonder what happened was perhaps some version of a Plaza Accord, which was a famous 1985 meeting amongst various major governments in the, in the world to try to force the dollar to be weaker to alleviate pressure on the financial system. Obviously, there was no such public statement or public meeting that took place with global central bank leaders. But if you look at what the dollar did, it stopped on an absolute dime, reversed and started weakening aggressively at that point. And from then on, the financial system was in risk on mode. So I can't help wondering, was there some kind of backroom deal or behind the scenes intervention in which central banks all agreed to a coordinated weakening of the U.S. dollar in order to alleviate the pressure on the financial system? I bring all of this up because the yields on the United Kingdom's bonds are once again spiking. They're actually approaching the levels at which things started to break in September of 2022. So all eyes need to be on what happens next. Does the dollar start to weaken again aggressively? Do we start seeing sort of verbal interventions from the Fed? Is there going to be some sort of open-ended or coordinated intervention in the financial system? Or is it going to be behind the scenes? But my point with all of this is that the issue that almost triggered a debt crisis in one of the largest economies in the world and the owner of one of the most used currencies in the world, the British pound, were once again getting to the point at which things started to break as far as bond yields for that country go. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens going forward. The Fed has officially paused its rate hikes at a time when the United Kingdom is once again flashing signs of danger in its bond markets. Those things don't necessarily seem related, but you have to remember that globally, most developed nations are extremely indebted at this time. And if the Fed, which is the most important central bank in the world, is now pausing rate hikes when inflation remains a problem globally and a major developed nation is watching its bond yield spike, indicating a crisis is coming, then we could see a dangerous situation progress. So these are all the things I'm looking at this week. I'm not seeing any indications of an aggressive risk off issue coming to the markets. Obviously, the Nasdaq and the tech stocks are extremely overbought, but things can stay overbought for a considerable amount of time. And many of the divergences that I've been noting for the last few weeks, namely between, say, the S&P 500 and junk bonds or between the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000, those things seem to be resolved with the laggards playing catch up. A lot of the sectors that have been lagging behind tech are playing catch up, such as industrials or consumer discretionary. We're also seeing a lot of sectors that are on the verge of breakouts to the upside, specifically real estate, staples, 
and a bunch of others I noted in Private Wealth Advisory. So what this is doing is it's actually making market breadth improving in a lot of ways. And we're seeing many sectors that previously were lagging behind on the verge of upside breakouts. This suggests to me that this rally actually has legs. And even if we see tech stocks correct or even consolidate, the overall market will probably continue to grind higher because more and more stocks are catching a bid, which is going to trigger fear of missing out from investors on the sidelines. And we're going to see capital moving back into the markets, which again is a boon towards stocks in general. This is everything I've got for you this week. The big risk is the yields in the United Kingdom, but the Fed has officially paused at a time when there's clearly too much inflation and clearly too much froth suggests that we're going to see more upside from here. I'm Graham Summers, and this is Bulls, Bears, and BS.